Welcome to the Forager Podcast, where I talk with cottage food entrepreneurs about their strategies for running a food business from home. I'm David Crable, and today I'm talking with Amy Wong and Lawrence Combs. They live in Cupertino, California, and sell huge six-ounce cookies, which they call pudges, with their bakery, Batch 22. Now, when the pandemic hit back in 2020, I noticed a ton of what I call Instagram-only cottage food businesses crop up. These were stuck-at-home bakers that posted tempting pictures of baked goods on Instagram, and boom, the sales rolled in. And they took the sales through DMs or direct messages on Instagram, hence Instagram-only businesses. Well, Amy and Lawrence started one of those bakeries at the beginning of the pandemic, but unlike most bakers out there, they put a lot of strategy and intentionality into their marketing and launch efforts. And wow, those efforts have paid off in a big way. They now have an avid following of people who can't seem to get enough of their incredible cookies and their business is growing extremely fast. Amazingly enough, they recently hosted their own Investor Day, which was an extremely successful fundraising event. It's the first time I've heard of a cottage food business doing anything like it. So they literally moved out of their home kitchen just a couple weeks ago and are currently in a transition process to moving into their own storefront this year. Amy and Lawrence's unusual business journey is simply fascinating. You'll notice that a lot of the things they do are pretty unorthodox, but you know what? It is working for them. So with that, let's jump right into this episode and hear all about it. Welcome to the show, Amy and Lawrence. Nice to have you here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it's good to be here. So guys, how did this whole journey get started? So a few years ago, I was in New York on a business trip and I had one of those famous six ounce cookies from Levin in New York. And since then I came home and I started testing an imitation recipe. So for a few years, I've been testing that six ounce size and I had moved on to other flavors besides oatmeal raisin. And then I started dating Lawrence. And at that time I had just quit my job and I was eventually going to job hunt, but all I was doing was just baking and testing cookies. And Lawrence was like, well, why don't you try selling the cookies since you're not going to job hunt anyways? I was kind of annoyed at that point. And I was like, look, you're just baking every day and like making all these breads and cookies and all this other stuff. Let's just like start a little bakery where, you know, you can just sell online or whatever and just see how it goes. Like just spend a couple hours a day like doing this. And if you really enjoy it, because it seems like where you want to spend your time anyway. Even when she was working, when we first started dating, She looked for like every excuse, like, you know, to like take a long lunch. She didn't really enjoy her marketing job at the time. Yeah, I would bake before, during and after meetings. It was pretty convenient because I was already remote before COVID. Well, interesting to hear that you were in a marketing job because I could tell looking through your Instagram account that you applied a lot of marketing principles that a lot of people wouldn't know to apply. So we'll get into that in a little bit. So you went to this bakery, you had this cookie, this amazing cookie, and then you were experimenting. How long were you experimenting with these cookies before you decided to start selling them? Probably three or four years. And I think it took almost three years to perfect the recipe of that first oatmeal raisin cookie that I wanted to make. And then it took like weeks just to get the bake time where I wanted And then when we opened the bakery, it took a few more tries to get the bake time updated. So it's the same recipe too. like if you order an oatmeal raisin right now, it's the same recipe that you were building all those years ago. 
So when did you actually start selling your cookies? May 2020. Well, like the very end of May, we did like a big advertising scheme, right? Where we went on Instagram and we just delivered cookies to people for free. So we like paid for all of these advertising short clips and lots of people signed up to receive free cookies. And we like drove to their houses and like gave them free cookies to get the Instagram going or get the the business to start going. So I don't think we actually had any sales until like June. Yeah. Yeah. But this is at the very beginning of the pandemic. Yeah. 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 (laughs) So we had to drive to their house. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's kind of fortuitous, right? Because the pandemic is when people were looking for comfort foods. And I know a lot of home bakeries, their business exploded at this time. So it was actually a really good time for you to start this business. Personally, I want to believe that it would have worked regardless, right? Obviously, I think the pandemic played into our strengths, but I don't see how getting cookies with free delivery is like ever going to be a strategy that doesn't work. I actually agree with you. And it's because I've seen how you marketed this. You did this giveaway at the beginning and you actually used a number of strategies throughout the next few months that most people wouldn't know to use, like requesting people's feedback or allowing them to be part of the journey. And you kept, you know, launching new things. You kept teasing those launches. You you used anticipation and a lot of people wouldn't use those marketing levers. So I agree with you that it would have worked anyway. It probably helped you kickstart a little bit faster. But yeah, definitely you <laughs> you seem to have a recipe for success. However, you did things in a way that I typically tell people not to do. You know, you spent a ton of time experimenting and perfecting your recipes, which is typically not a great idea because you want to get out and sell sooner and get people's feedback first. But you know, now that you started the business, do you feel like if you... You could go back in time. You should have started selling, you know, 2018 or 2019. Definitely not. I think the cookie just evolved like very, very slowly at first because I was not efficient at my testing process back then. So the recipe had all these small changes and then eventually the changes became bigger and bigger. And that's where I started feeling like, okay, now this is a product that I would love to eat and share with my friends. And I was just looking for perfection. And I mean, nothing is perfect, but I just wanted to satisfy that tinkering itch to make a perfect cookie. So you created this perfect cookie. You tried to replicate the cookie that you had in New York. So you launched with that cookie. What else did you launch with when you launched the business? We had a bunch of classic cookies at the time. So. Uh Like ginger molasses, gourmet chocolate chip, birthday cookies, peanut butter. Peanut butter was, it was amazing. For some reason, like peanut butter never caught on. But there was a bunch of classics and like smaller cookies and one big six ounce cookie. And the six ounce cookie didn't catch on like at all in the beginning. Like no one wanted to buy it. We just sold the classics. And Amy made this cookie. It was like just a basic chocolate chip six ounce cookie called Choco Pudge. So she made this Choco Pudge six ounce thing. And it tasted a little bit like maple. Oh, it blew my mind. I was like, this is the best thing ever. And after that, like two months later, we were like, okay, we're only going to sell six ounce cookies. <laughs> it's just so much better than everything else that's out there. So it, it's more like a uh, obsession, you know, with how much better six ounce cookies are in terms of like a first experience that people have with them. You know, like it's just so much richer. There's just so many advantages to it. I thought that and it's so different than what people are used to. 
that I just thought that it was way more marketable than the classics that we were selling at the time. So we decided to start focusing that direction, even if it would be a major setback. At the time, we thought it was going to be a major setback. But then Amy was able to produce some flavors that were just like instant successes rather than like, you know, tinkering and like making a lot of mistakes. It was just a little bit lucky for us to get through that portion, right? It should have taken longer, I think. That's so fascinating that you started out with a bunch of flavors, just classic cookies and one six ounce cookie, which I know you you call them pudges. And that didn't catch on, but now that's all you do. You just sell pudges these days. Where does the the name Pudge come from? My brother, because he loves to nickname everything. And he said, this cookie is like so fat, so cute. It's a pudge. Mm -hmm. So it just caught on. But we did have to spend a lot of time like explaining why or what is a pudge. So after the first year, I think people have caught on and people are into it. You know, not only did you start during the pandemic when this kind of comfort food thing was taking off, but also I've noticed a big trend in the last couple of years, particularly with crumble cookie, kind of leading the way with this big cookie trend that you're you're kind of on that train too. So if people are trying to understand what your cookies are like, are they like crumble cookies or how are they different? Amy and I are kind of like big haters, right? Like we try a bunch of the cookies in the area and stuff because we're big fans of BJ's, right? We love like a Pazuki, that kind of thing. So I wouldn't say like we're tough critics, but I feel like a lot of people don't put in the effort to do like the full on testing process because I feel like Crumble, Crumble is an awesome idea. And I, I like saw their website and it looks amazing, right? And they have like a lot of amazing, cool, aesthetic looking cookies. But I feel like they're just like large cookies with uh, buttercream frosting. It's almost like a cookie mashed together with a cupcake. So I think that that's very different than what we do. Amy makes like a really large, like fat, hulky six ounce cookie. So the inside has like a completely different texture than what people are used to from a cookie in general. So I feel like it's like a different experience rather than like a large cookie with buttercream frosting, right? And I I have tried their cookies and they were Okay, but I didn't see anything amazing about the cookie. I saw it like amazing about their marketing and their aesthetic. Their aesthetic was like really nice. So what are you putting in? I know these are pretty labor intensive cookies. Like what does that mean? Like what steps are you taking to make this cookie that makes it so complicated? One of the simplest requirements that I have is the use of brown butter wherever it makes a cookie better. So pumpkin spice a pecan cookie, chocolate chip, oatmeal raisin. Like these are all flavors that to me personally, if you're going to produce these flavors, they must have brown butter. And this is usually like the farthest that other bakeries will go for their cookies. But for for me personally, it's the, the starting point. Yeah. And then there's a lot of fine tuning in the amount of sugar, the amount of spices where applicable So I think I just hold our cookies to a higher standard in terms of like the sweetness can't be too much and the flavors have to be like really nailing how we describe it. And then there are a lot of ingredients that like say we might candy nuts or we might toast the nuts or toast oats, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So lots of elements have a lot of prep going into them. So, I mean, I know these are very complicated to make. But also that presents a problem on the business end, right? Like if they take this much time, they're so labor intensive. 
how do you get the finances to work out when people are typically used to, you know, not paying a lot of money for a cookie? Was that a challenge when you were getting started? Yeah, I think this one came down to marketing. So not only did we have to educate people on what is a pudge, we also had to educate people on like what goes into each cookie, like why they're labor intensive, what we think about sweetness. We go in depth with describing our flavors. So it took a lot of time to convince people that the cookies are worth like five fifty or $7 even. Sometimes it can take months to convert someone to buy. And we know this because sometimes they tell us. So it's a lot of social media and blogging about what goes on while we're thinking about the cookie and how it came to be. But besides that reluctance, we've had very little pushback on the price. I don't even recall a single comment about it being like, this is so expensive or this is you know not worth the price. I've, I've never heard that comment before. Like, we've heard criticism before, but we haven't gotten like price pushback on the cookies, which I'm very surprised about. So five fifty to seven dollars for a single cookie—that's going to be shocking to most of the podcast listeners. But you do live in Cupertino, which has got to be one of the most expensive areas in the entire country. So there's that factor, and then obviously it's so labor intensive as well. I wanted to mention one more thing about that: the cookies are six ounces, so they're they're massive, right? But the, they're like $6 a cookie. So it comes out to be about a dollar an ounce, which is comparable to bakery standard, right? So if you sell a two ounce cookie, typically they're $2 or $2.25 if you go to any standard bakery. So I feel like our pricing is kind of comparable, even though it does feel like a, a large jump. So I, I want to get into the pudges a little bit and the flavors and all that. But first, I want to just, you know, go through the beginning days of your business, right? You did this giveaway, this freebie where you're delivering cookies for free. How did that launch go? Well, my car broke down that day. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I like forgot the bake time of Snickerdoodle that day or something. So I had to bake a ton extra to make up for it. I think I had three hours of sleep, which is because you're so nervous. Yeah, I was really nervous for the entire year. <laughs> I, I don't think there was a single week where we didn't have like some weird baking issue or something that came up that made that week difficult or that delivery difficult. But that first go was like really uncomfortable. And then when we got through all of it, we had like a lot of positive feedback. And then we grew our Instagram following, which seems like so small now, but it, it was like from 10 people that were like friends and family to like 300 random people. So it got up to like 300 after that day. And you said you paid for ads or something? Mm -hmm. It costed like $40. So it wasn't. I think like all together, it was more than $40, but like all together, we had spent like $300 to start the business minus the food costs. So like without including food costs. Okay. So, and then, and so you got feedback, you got good feedback. So that was at the end of May, I think that you gave these cookies away. And so did those giveaways convert into orders? Yeah, they did. The The major thing was that we offered the free cookies at the expense of people giving a, giving review. a, a review on their story or post. So that was like the price of the cookie. So it didn't just convert into orders, but it converted into like more exposure and then more trickling in followers throughout the next couple of weeks. Okay, so this is one totally free cookie, right? <laughs> they had to give you something. And do you know how many people you delivered cookies to? 
had to be like 30, yeah. like 30 houses we went to. And then after that, you then started selling your cookies. So how did the launch or sales process go? I think slowly at first. For a few months, it was pretty slow. It wasn't like we were getting bombarded or anything, but it just, it felt like I was getting bombarded because the baking was so stressful. <laughs> I remember Amy looking at me one night. It was like our biggest week ever, and it was $300 in sales. And Amy was just so overwhelmed and just like almost tears holding back in her eyes. She was just like so stressed out, so strung out. And so like she had her whole family there. Like, you know, I was there and we're all just like, everyone's like getting to work (laughs) to help her out because she's like so stressed. And I remember talking to her like, in the future, we're going to laugh about $300 in sales. (laughs) One day it's going to be like, this is like, we'll never see that number again kind of thing. But that was huge to us at the time. One thing that I noticed when you're getting your Instagram account off the ground, and this is something else I typically tell people is to share your story, allow people into your world, you know, allow them to be a part of your journey. And your Instagram account is totally depersonalized. I mean, I think you only posted pictures of cookies for at least a year, and there wasn't anything about you, your partnership or anything. Was that intentional? Or was that just because you didn't want to put yourself on Instagram? That was a super conscious choice from day one. I've seen a lot of startups lead with the founder story. But in our case, I thought our founder story doesn't add any credibility to the cookies. So we wanted to build a reputation just based on cookie quality and maybe cookie aesthetic. So we went for about a year and a half before we had that kind of reputation. Enough people were asking who we were and what our story was. And then we decided to do like a nice reveal where I had my friend drop a comic for us and really like show our story the way we wanted to. So we've got this really cute comic with some characters. It was a really nice way to welcome ourselves into the world after hiding for such a long time. I feel like even then you were a little reserved about it, though. We had like a long conversation about whether or not we should put ourselves on the Instagram, even when we had like the story and like we were getting a lot of requests about it. And like we started to do like some investment pitching. And Amy was still a little bit concerned about that kind of like privacy matter. But I'm glad that we did get out in front of everybody. I think that it did help and it did give us some boost. Yeah, I mean, you posted that story about yourselves. I feel like pretty recently. So this is well over a year after you were running a thriving business, right? Yeah, it was a year and a half in that we shared our story. Well, that's very interesting and worked well for you guys. It's just cool to see something different. So as you were building this business, you know, the first few months, you said it was kind of slow, but you were also selling traditional cookies at that time. You hadn't really caught on to the whole pudge thing. But you you start to develop these pudges and you have created an amazing number of different flavors of pudges at this point. So what kind of flavors have you created or what was the first after the chocolate chip one? How did that evolve? So Lawrence actually made the third pudge, which was matcha. Now it's matcha white chocolate, but he kind of would follow me around and ask all these questions about ingredients and baking and whatnot. What did what and why this did what? Yeah. Yeah. So he actually made that third pudge and I don't know why, but I 
kept swearing that matcha pudge wouldn't work. And then, <laughs> um, you know, he made it and I taught him how to mix, I think. And then we baked it and it was so delicious. So that was the third. And then I think we were into fall 2020. So we made pumpkin spice, which I hate, but I knew it was like an obligatory flavor. So I actually really love it now. It's pumpkin spice with cheesecake filling. And then I I don't know if these were like 2020, but we have a pecan pudge. We have red velvet, which is really tricky cookie flavor. We have pink lemonade, key lime. I'm, I'm forgetting a bunch of flavors. You know what's funny is back then we used to argue all the time about, you know, little things about not only about flavors, but everything about the business. And every time that there was like some major argument that we couldn't just like decide on something together, it was just like, all right, fine, I'm going to do it myself. (laughs) If it works, you're going to have to eat your words, you know? And if it doesn't work, then I'll eat mine, right? And that's happened so many times with like, and some of the things that you'll do like in terms of marketing or like uh, some sort of like advertisement that you're going to put up and you're like, I'm, I'm telling you that it's it's not a good idea. It's not going to work. And you're like, well, whatever. I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> and then, you know, it's usually like the person that's stubborn enough to do it anyway. And then it, it's so far we're like, what, like five for five on the like, all right, I'm doing it myself then. And then it ends up working. Yeah, the stubborn one always wins. But yeah, we, we've made a lot of flavors. We seem to have a, a special spot for like fruity flavors recently. We do a few Asian flavors here and there. And then some classic American stuff with the twist like... We make a campfire pledge and it's like a s'more. Yeah. And with the area that we're in too, like people are pretty health conscious. So Amy works really, really hard to ensure that the cookies aren't too sweet. That's like kind of one of the key factors of our flavor profile is ensuring that there isn't too much sweetness going on. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. I mean, (laughs) you're in a more health conscious area. I mean, the whole Bay Area, you know, Southern California as well. And you're not selling health conscious items, right? I mean, you can talk about lowering the sugar level, but there's nothing healthy about these pudges. Yeah, not one bit. It's not always low sugar that makes it taste less sweet though, right? And then and then changing sugar, what a lot of people don't think about, changing your sugar ratios changes the texture of the cookie. If you're gonna make like a, a totally health conscious, no sugar cookie, you're you're not gonna get the texture of a normal cookie. It's gonna be awful. almost no matter what you do. But I see what you're saying, right? Like we're definitely not like a health conscious brand in that way. We do like to have like a less sweet taste because that seems to be like what is definitely in fashion right now in this area. But in terms of like diet restrictions and stuff like that, like no, we're catering to the the 50% of the area that's like okay with with the treat or indulging themselves a bit. Yeah, you definitely right. shouldn't eat one pudge in one sitting though. Maybe just your first one, but after that, you should ration or share. <laughs> well, so I counted up how many pudges you've created, and it's about 20 different flavors at this point over the past couple of years that you've created. What have been some of the most popular creations? Red velvet and pumpkin spice are really, really popular. You're missing it. What? What's more popular? It was the most simple one that I thought was going to be like a total flop. It was cold pudge. Oh, <laughs> okay. So cold pudge is a blackout brownie cookie. It's the flavor of Oreo. And we did it around Christmas time. So I was like, okay, it looks really black and it's like a lump of coal. So we're going to call it cold pudge. So that is incredibly beloved. I don't know, because 
if it's because people love chocolate or because it's so funny looking. Mm. So that red velvet with cheesecake filling and pumpkin spice with cheesecake filling, those are like beloved. And in the summer, like strawberries and strawberry lemonade. Yeah. And then pink lemonade is like really citrusy. It tastes like pink lemonade in the summer with strawberries. Yeah, some pretty creative flavors. Which flavors were the hardest to create? Red velvet and pink lemonade. So red velvet has gone through a couple updates. So last year was when I first made it and I had nightmares about this cookie because it's such a wet cookie. It has buttermilk and vinegar and natural cocoa. So the two liquid ingredients are with the cocoa. That's what gives you the tang of red velvet. Like you can't get red velvet flavor any other way, I think. So using those ingredients, it's it's really hard to get a proper cookie texture. I did my best last year, but this year, the update, I'm really proud of it because it's like true cookie texture, like crisp on the outside, chewy on the inside. And then the other one is pink lemonade. Like I could zest 20 lemons and I still wouldn't get enough lemon flavor in the cookie. So I also had nightmares about that one. And so that was a breakthrough in just learning about new ingredients. We ended up using a combination of acids. So that's how we get the citric flavor in the cookie without overwhelming it with the oils from lemon zest. So Amy, are you pretty much all on the cookie side of things? How do you guys split your time with the business? I'm cookies all the time. I'm also the website and the social media and photography and customer service, I guess. Yeah, we both do customer service. So like I do like catering and sales. I'm currently handling all of the investments on our behalf. And then, you know, we both run like marketing ideas and stuff together. And then we both work on aesthetics together. And, you know, we both work on like inventory and you know, I just help make sure that the business is running smoothly. And like, if there's ever like issues with her back end process, then, you know, I'll, I'll help her adjust those things. What Lawrence is forgetting to say is he's like the whole business and finance side, which I don't have any background in. So basically you need each other. Yeah. And did you say you guys are dating? Yes. Yep. So has that put any stress on the relationship to be running a business together? I think it's been good. Uh, I think it's, yeah. I don't, I wouldn't say it helped our relationship, but it definitely hasn't hurt at all. Yeah. It's good because we argue about the business a lot and I'm a very passive person. So we kind of, over time, I've gotten used to just like airing it all out, you know, and not holding stuff in. At first, you would get really, really upset because, like, you know, if we ever had differing opinions, you know, you take it really, really personally. So it like helps a little bit with communication, like making sure that we both say what we want, say what we like, say what we don't like. So I do enjoy the fact that we argue a bit more because of the business. Yeah, I don't argue with anyone else, so it's kind of refreshing. So I wanted to talk about the sales side of this business because it seems like for a long time, you guys just did Instagram and DMs. Was that your sales process at the beginning? We did, and then maybe five or six months in, I had a friend who coded a one-page website for us, so that helped 
like I wasn't required to be on the phone all the time taking orders. People could just do it all on this like very simple but like, you know, sophisticated enough website that I no longer had to be that person manning the desk. And then later we upgraded the website and we're on Shopify now. And it's not perfect, but it's like fully automated. Yeah, we wouldn't recommend Shopify for anyone that wanted to start a food business. So I noticed that you have also done quite a lot of giveaways on Instagram to boost your business. What were some of your first giveaways and how did those come together? I think the first few were probably around like Christmas time in our first, maybe second year. Mm -hmm. And a couple of them were partnerships and a few of them were just ones that we did on our own. I had no idea how to do it at first, but, you know, we would just give away a box of cookies here and there. Yeah, I think like when you look at our analytics, the giveaways give very little boost. They're more like tokens of appreciation. Like we really love to see like people like interact with us and like the people who have been around for a long time. Like we love to give everybody like a special gift for every order that we get at the end of the year, at the end of the season. So then we had like pins made one year, one year we did keychains. So we, we always do that and we eat the cost of that, but I, I haven't actually seen too much gain from a lot of the Instagram giveaways. I know a lot of businesses do them like more often than we do. I wouldn't say we don't do them a lot. We do do them quite a bit in the holiday season, but they just don't offer the boost that you think they would. In the first year, we did see like, you know, plus two under followers. A little bit of engagement. Yeah. yeah. But the second year we got like, you know, plus 30 followers. So I mean, now I just like doing seven days of giveaways and the last day of the giveaways, you know, that custom batch 22 gift. Mm -hmm. Yeah, now we just do it because we, we think it's festive. Yeah, we like it. Yeah. <laughs> I love the holiday season. Me too. So and with you doing all these DMs, that's obviously a very manual way of taking orders. And then were people just coming and picking them up or were you still delivering these in your car after, you know, you started selling them? We were still doing deliveries and we still offer deliveries today. And we were doing the deliveries ourselves for uh, half a year, up to a year. And during one of the holiday seasons, we realized I couldn't bake and deliver because I was too tired. So we started to outsource that. So occasionally we do still do the deliveries ourselves, but we have drivers for that now. And then we were offering pickups out of my family home the past two years. And now we're partnered with a boba shop to offer those pickups. So, I mean, you came into the holiday season in 2020. I imagine that was a pretty busy time, right? Rough. Yeah. Yeah. It was like your war memories. Oh, God. <laughs> I blocked this out. <laughs> we had baked, you know, so many cookies out of the home oven at that point, And I was baking six or seven hours you know, six to like 10 or 12 cookies at a time in the home oven. So I remember that we did one week that was like over a thousand dollars in sales <laughs> and you were working like 12 hours a day for like six days straight. Yeah. Cause we had like a, I don't know if we even had our eight quart mixer at that point. We had like my dinky little five quart mixer that my <laughs> brother got me. We're just all in the back putting saran wrap over dough balls and stuff. And it was just like... Was Ultimate just, home bakery. Yeah, yeah. exactly. As, as home bakery as it gets at that point. Yeah, it wasn't until after that year that we, we decided that it was time to go. Yeah, exactly. It was, it was time to grow. 
So that's where we agreed upon getting a commercial oven, starting to get commercial mixers and like just putting them in the house anyway. I did see, I saw a post where you said you had a mixer issue. Can you share that story? So on that same day, I sprained my ankle and then the mixer stopped working and an angel of a friend was like, hey, I have a 10-quart mixer. Do you want to borrow it? And I was like, yes, of course. <laughs> but there were lots of customers who reached out and offered up their five or six-quart KitchenAid mixers. And I was like, wow, this is bad news, but this is also like so nice. Like so many offers of KitchenAid mixers. And the, the supply chain issues had just like came in. Because we had ordered a 20-quart mixer like three months before that, that mixer broke down. Now we know we wouldn't have seen it for like another nine months. But we at the time, we were like, oh, it's going to come in any day now. <laughs> we just got to hold out a little longer. Yeah. So it took nine months to get that mixer? Oh, seven months. It took seven months, yeah. But it feels like... It's, it felt like a year. year. Yeah, it felt like a year, like a year and a half. So I know that the first, you know, the holiday season in 2020 was crazy busy. You took a break after that in January to rest. And then what happened in 2021? How did your business progress in that year? I, I think that 2021 is where we, we finally hit our stride. So like we, we currently use the same business model that we were using in 2021 where we have like our fall, our summer, our spring lineups that we roll out. And then we have like our advertising for those or our teasers that we put out for those lineups that are coming up to get people excited about season changes, you know, about little events that we're putting out. So that was like the first time I felt like, oh, the business is running in a very almost corporate manner, right? Where things seem really smooth. And there was a lot of problems that came up in 2021. But that was the first time that I saw that you know, there's a lot of structure to the business that we had. And minus all of the, you know, the random mistakes that happened and stuff like that. I felt like there was a lot of potential. It was like a very consistent growth line that you almost never see. I keep forgetting that there was a time when we weren't consistent. So that was the year where I took the time to nail the process of making dough because a million things can go wrong like every single stage from the temperature of the eggs and the butter to each mixing stage to the baking to the rotation time. So that was the year we figured that out. And then there's a lot of back-end tech stuff. The Shopify site took us like six weeks. So like, you know, a 1% or less error rate doesn't just magically happen. It's because like, you know, my sister helps me do some weird stuff in Python so that our backend shoots out some automated labels. So it's a little bit manual right now, but you know, it definitely works and our error rate went down like dramatically. And so we almost don't see any mistakes most weeks. So it's pretty nice because in food business, like mistakes happen all the time and you know, we just want to keep the customers happy. I'm sure one thing that's made it a more simple and less error prone system is that you're just doing pudges now, right? Like, how has that evolved to the point of you just simplifying it down to one type of product? Yeah, for the first year, we had to educate people on like what a pudge is and why you should buy it. So the sales have shifted dramatically from being more of the classics and shortbread, which people are used to, to mostly pudges and then a couple classics. And just because it's 
something to get people in the door if they feel really uncomfortable with like a huge cookie. So over time, like, honestly, the pudges are the easiest to bake, like, because of the size, they're impossible to overbake, really. Now my my wiggle time for baking error is about like 10 seconds. So there's like, almost no time when I would overbake the cookies unless I like fell asleep or some freak accident happened. It's a it's a branding trade off too, right? Because when we stop making shortbread, like you do lose a little bit in the in the sales, right? Because the people that normally buy shortbread, albeit not that many people, you do end up like losing those like consistent sales that you would have gotten. But what batch 22 looks like now, it's now synonymous with pudge, right? That could be like a major advantage. It makes it a lot easier for people to digest what batch 22 is. I think one of the best things about your business is that, you know, you constantly have new flavors coming in and you constantly have popular flavors going out. So like when you, and then not only do you have a new flavor coming in, but you also will tease that and, you know, build anticipation. So like when you, when you start to build anticipation for a new flavor and then finally launch it, you know, what's the reception like with your audience? So almost regardless of what the flavor is, when we put out a new flavor, it becomes our top seller. But that doesn't mean that that trend will continue. Sometimes like some cookies are superior to others. Like when we released like matcha white chocolate ganache, <sighs> you know, it had like big sales for one week and then it just plummeted oh. into this into the floor, right? Yeah. So, but I like that what you had mentioned about like, we have like popular flavors going out because when we release a new flavor, the reception will be really, really high, but that can't really continue. That's a, that's not sustainable. But then when we say that, okay, this is the last week of X flavor or a pumpkin spice or whatever, then the sales shoot back up again for that same flavor. So while it's not sustainable to like, just like crush sales throughout every week, it does give us boosts of sales like consistently throughout the year because we also time it so that flavors go in and out apart from each other, even if they're in the same season. So like one flavor might go in at the beginning of spring, but one flavor might come in that's also a spring flavor will come in at the end of spring. And so that just ensures that there's less volatility for our business. Was that marketing strategy always part of the plan or is that something you just stumbled upon along the way? It was not necessarily part of the plan in the very beginning because we were just like turning out flavors. But it, in 2021, it was already part of the plan. But at the end of 2020, when Amy was just like creating tons of new flavors, trying to, you know, come out with stuff, it was more like, just get it out when you can, right? Yeah. Because like, we're dying for a new flavor now. It's stressful because I can spend five weeks on something or more and be like, no, this is not ready and it can't be released. Like, Apple pie pudge has never seen the light of day because it was just never good enough. Did you ever have a flavor that just totally failed? Oh, tiramisu was complete. Mm, it was so gross. <laughs> we have a new idea for tiramisu, though. Oh, yeah. It it could see the light of day. Oh, yeah. But but the white chocolate ganache, like it might have seen the light of day, but it never should have. Yeah. Because like when you bake them, they would like be Bleak. oozing out. Yeah, they would, they would like almost explode. Like I don't know how it got past. Uh, like the first round of testing, yeah. So as you got towards the end of uh, 2021, I saw that you had some kind of a shutdown, emergency shutdown in uh, December. Yeah, it was, okay, so it was right after the Eater article and the phone wouldn't stop ringing and then we got COVID. I was like dying to work because 
you know, you've got like 16 of your best weeks of the year. And like, as horrible as like 12 or 16 hour days are like, you know, I still want to work. So anyways, we couldn't work for like two weeks. And it was right after we had got this massive influx of followers and like new customers and stuff. And we just postponed everyone's orders. It was not the end of the world. So you were featured in Eater. Was there like a massive boost after that feature? Yes. Yep. So I used to think that PR was just like <laughs> some some ploy to yeah. like look good or put a logo on your website or whatever. Turns out PR actually works. And if you do right by the customers, they stick around. So ever since then, like the sales have just like skyrocketed. And then I saw you have this partnership with Discover Pastel. Yeah, so they're like a delivery service and they bring treats to the entire Bay Area. So they'll grab treats from tons of bakeries and like restaurants from SF and sometimes East Bay and us in South Bay. And then they'll deliver everywhere and they just have like all these pickup spots. Yeah, they're they're currently handling like all of our orders that are coming from San Francisco. And we've gotten like quite a consistent revenue base from them. But also we like that we're testing the San Francisco market because we hope to open a second location there. So as your business has uh, moved forward, I know that you've had your eyes on opening up a storefront and I just couldn't believe that you had a whole investor day. And and most people who would want to raise money for their next transition in their business would, you know, look to Kickstarter or some kind of crowdfunding thing or take out a business loan. So can you explain a little bit about what you did with trying to raise money for this next step? Like all decisions that go through the the business, Amy and I sat down and we made a like priority list of like what we were looking for, how much money we would need. And like we did some studying on like some storefront locations, what the costs were. Once we figured out those things, it was like, okay, what are the options? So we came up with like four different options. We had a bank loan, which was one of them. We had, um, yeah, Kickstarter. We had accredited investing through like restaurateurs, which would be like people that work in the restaurant business that normally like partner with bakeries or restaurants to help them open. But, you know, you're giving up a large percent of equity to, to pull that off. And then the last one was like, okay, well, why don't we test our customer base first to see who would like to, you know, like partner up with us and like give out like an offer to the people that are already like supporting us. And this could help like not only, you know, help with our loyalty and help with uh, like engaging with our community and stuff, but it could be like, potentially we could just raise the money that way. And then we could, if it works, if it's successful, then we will, we won't be in debt at all. We'll give up, you know, the minimum requirement of equity that we can, and we'll have the storefront. So we were like, okay, so let's let's rank them in which are the base case scenario to worst case scenario. And then we'll go down the list because no matter what, we're going to figure out how we're going to get the money. The number one was being like the investor day. And then number two would be like accredited investing. And number three would be Kickstarter. And number four would be, would be the bank loan, right? The bank loan was going to be like the, all right, let's put up this house for collateral. This is our last chance. Let's <laughs> take this, you know, this huge, like high interest rate real loan. So the investor day ended up being like, okay, our first priority, and we did not expect it to get the reception that it did. We also didn't expect it to work. We just wanted to like test the waters and see what we could do from it. How did you get the word out about this investor day? 
we used our, our Instagram contacts, but then mainly we used like our personal contacts as well. Like, because we had made relationships with like everyone we've come across, like we came across like all the people from discover pastel, you know, like Amy's made a lot of bakery friends along the way. And so we were able to create a like miniature network that was a lot stronger than we had anticipated. Like it was just so fun to test the power of the community because I know for me, like I've made a lot of, I call them customer friends because, you know, I end up in long chats with them on our Instagram DMs, but, you know, having chats with someone isn't the same as them forking over their hard-earned money. So a lot of it is just us putting ourselves out there and sharing our cookie philosophies and all the hard work we put into the cookies and just saying that message over and over again. Because if I learned anything in marketing, it's that the person putting out the message gets way more tired of the message before the customer begins to understand what you're saying. So we basically put the same message out there like a million times in slightly different ways. Mm -hmm. So I think that's just paid off. And, you know, I think people trust us. So how did this investor day work? Because typically like an investor day for startups, you're going to have a very highly curated audience of people that have to be at a certain threshold of investor in order to even get in. Like, was it this something that just anybody could come to and put down whatever they wanted to help support you? Yeah, anyone that was available to make it was invited. It was all catered. There was like free cookies that everyone could try. And we had like a presentation that we went through. It was about what, 20 minutes long. So we did like our full presentation, like when, when everyone was there and like mingled with everybody. Then we gave the details on the investment. It was a safe investment that we were offering at the event. So this is like a simple agreement for future equity. So we're not giving up any equity at this point. People that paid in for a safe are buying in for the promise of the future equity of the company because there was no valuation given at this investor meeting. So we didn't have a prepared valuation. So we offered them the ability to buy in three years from now, either at a future financing event or at a li- what's classified in the agreement as a liquidity event. And so we explained how it worked and you know how it ran. And there was like two different tiers that you could go into. So there was like a lower tier and a higher tier. The lower tier was like more for unaccredited investors, which we could only take on so many. There's, you know, there's a limit to how many unaccredited investors you can do in an investment round. At this point, we had already had like detailed conversations with our with one of our lawyers who was running this investment round for us. So we we knew the limitations of like what was possible, what wasn't possible based on, you know, like what we were offering. And, you know, we had a second tier that was for like more geared towards accredited investing. And we got a, a mix of both, right? Like there were people that wanted to invest like $1,000. And then there were people that wanted to invest like $50,000, right? So it, it was, you know, it was a very successful event. And we don't need to go through any of the other investment options anymore because we've, we've raised enough money. It was kind of humbling, right? It was an incredible experience. And we're currently working on the, the filing of our investments at this point. So we just need to make sure that we have all our paperwork and stuff and our lawyers handling that on our behalf. Yeah, I mean, this it kind of sounds pretty complicated, probably over a lot of people's heads, right? Like, I mean, you're talking about how much equity you can give up or you know what the legalities are for taking on investor money. Were you knowledgeable about investing stuff before this? I thought I was, but in this case, when we're talking about like starting up a new company, like I was not familiar with any of it all because like I'm not an accredited investor myself. 
So I had never been on any of these like accredited exchanges where they're like buying new companies or investing in new companies. And like, they're all familiar with the agreements and like all of the nuance of it. You know, it was a, a big learning curve for me, for sure. There was a lot, a lot of studying that went into it. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. I mean, it's just a totally different way of raising money. I've never heard of anybody with a, a cottage food business trying to raise money like this. And obviously it was super successful for you guys. Now, what paperwork and everything, you have the money to work with. So I guess now you're working on transitioning out of your home and into a, a commercial space. Uh, the commercial space is pretty temporary. It's only because we're seeing such like a high influx of volume all of a sudden. Like I feel like after investor day, we've been getting like a large influx of sales. And so, you know, we were like, okay, we want something in the meantime that we can work with, where we can hire more people, where we can have more ovens to work with, more mixers to work with. But we're, we're going to be moving into a storefront, hopefully end of fall or winter, because we're looking to uh, buy the assets of a potentially like either failed business or somebody who no longer wants their business or, you know, someone who was hopefully working in a cafe or bakery space that we can take over. Yeah, commercial kitchen rentals are not like as glamorous as you think. There is not as much space as you'd like ever. And of course, it's a shared kitchen. So it's not like the place we want to stay at for very long. But moving into the kitchen and getting the permitting done, that doesn't take very long. So thankfully, it's like pretty easy. I know that you're in a very high cost of living area. I was just curious, what is the cost of your commercial kitchen? Sure, sure. Okay. So like, I don't know about it hourly because they have like, what is it? Using the sink is like X amount hourly. Using this is X amount hourly. Using the storage facility or whatever. All of it's like has different hourly rates and stuff. So it's very confusing. When we did all the math, it came out to like 2200 a month. But that's because we would be using so much of their stuff all of the time. Yeah. So like we're not paying that right now. But it's because we had to work out a, like and negotiate with the owner of the kitchen. I wouldn't imagine people, you know, paying that much per month for a shared space. So you're looking at getting a storefront. What has the process been like for trying to find a space? So we use a uh, site called Bizben where we try to find places that are, you know, selling their assets. There's a few ways that we can go about it. There's the asset sale, which is like the cleanest and the fastest way, which is what we're hoping for. That would be like if a failing coffee shop or a shop that like they just don't want to continue is no longer interested in staying in their place. They're like, okay, we'll give you all of the stuff inside for like $70,000 and then you can renegotiate the lease or something like that, right? So that that's like the ideal scenario. If that doesn't end up uh, working out, then we might have to like rent out like a commercial space where we might have to do a partial build out, which can be very expensive. Although there's an advantage to it because a partial build out means that we're working with an architect who designs it the way that we want. There's an aesthetic appearance and it helps with some of the branding that Batch 22 can show off, right? So there's some advantages to it, but it's much, much more expensive and it takes a longer amount of time. You know, like this first store that we're opening is more, we, we consider it more to be like our starter store, kind of like the cookie printing factory, rather than being the batch 22 ideal, like our, like a our store. dream store. Yeah, exactly. So it's not quite our dream store yet. We, we know what it is and we plan on like just having our own space to print out cookies and then using, you know, the leverage from that increase in revenue. We should be able to open like an ideal store either in the area or in like San Francisco or somewhere where we feel like we could really take off somewhere where the, the market has already been pre-tested. 
So this commercial kitchen that you're trying to either build or buy or whatever coming up in the fall, is that going to be a storefront at all? Or is it just going to be a place for you know people to pre-order and you make your items and people pick up or you deliver from there? No, it'll absolutely be a storefront. People will be able to walk in and we have all of the logistics like sorted out, like employees, like their shift schedules, like everything is, is sorted out to be like a very, like a functioning storefront. We even have our, like people can like go through and check out our business plan online. It's been made public. So you can like, you know, take a look at that and see like where we plan on focusing our resources in terms of sales, in terms of marketing, et cetera, et cetera. Like we have a lot of ideas that have already been put into place. I feel like our business plan is very detailed. It's pretty exhaustive. Yeah, it sounds like you have big ambitions. Amy, does it feel like overwhelming as you keep jumping up and (laughs) expanding? Yes. Yes, it absolutely does. (laughs) (laughs) I don't say anything during the any of the questions about investment because it totally goes over my head. Like Lawrence has to explain like I'm five because I don't I don't understand a lot of it. So when he says it in layman's terms, I kind of get it, but like I don't understand all of the nuances. So it is a lot for me, but thankfully I just have to focus on like the cookies and keeping quality consistent as we transition. When you started this business, you'd obviously done a ton of experimentation, Amy, and then, you know, you decided to start the business, you came up with a marketing scheme, but I'm sure you had, you know, a vision for what the future would look like. What was that vision like? compared to what it is now? (laughs) I'm pretty risk averse, so I'm not sure how much of a vision I had. I think I figured I was just going to do this for like a few weeks maybe. And, you know, a few months went by and we had a few weeks that were slower or whatever. But over time, you know, things picked up. And I don't think I ever thought about quitting. But, you know, during the hard seasons, that's when I was like, oh, okay, yeah, I still really like doing this, even though I'm on my feet for like 16 hours. Now, I think, I don't know, for a while, I've been committed to the future of the pudges and stuff. So now I'd like to see through tons of new types of pudges. I want to do tons of new flavors that people haven't thought of, not just like cookie flavors, but things that were supposed to be cake or a drink and turn those into punch flavors and like lots of fun stuff. Amy, what drives you in this business? I mean, I know you like tinkering with recipes, but it's one thing to experiment with perfecting a recipe and another thing to mass produce (laughs) these cookies. Like what keeps you going? Uh, Why are you so passionate about this? I think at the end of the day, it's you know, it's people, product, or process. And for me, it's product. Still to this day, like my favorite thing to do is theorize about new flavors and tinker. I don't care much for the mass production aspect. Like I'd rather have people do it and I want to be in the kitchen, like making a single batch of something new and seeing how that goes. And I want to be like asking people for feedback and that kind of thing excites me a lot still. What about you, Lawrence? What keeps you going? So when it comes to this bakery, you know, this is Amy's baby. You know, I give her like all of the support that she needed. So this isn't really a passion of mine. This isn't something that I am like pursuing to be like my end career, right? Like I work as a gymnastics trainer and like I have young students that, you know, have big dreams and I want to support them. And uh, this bakery is like my way of supporting Amy And like helping her in something that she loves and like giving her the ability to like work in a way that she's like feels like is 
fulfilling. And so like, to me, that's enough, right? I can spend the extra 20, 30 hours a week knowing that like the hours are going and being well spent. And that's good enough for me. But it's definitely not something that I'm going to do until I retire kind of thing, right? So you talked about how you're you're going to do this transition store and then you have your vision for what you'd like this to be in the future. So what what's your ultimate vision? Where are you wanting to take this business? There's no ultimate vision for the business at this point because I'm not the kind of person that looks past five years in the future. I just think that there's so many different variables that it makes almost no sense to be like, okay, this is where things are going to end up five years from now. So within the next three years, I can tell you what we're doing. We're going to open this first starter shop. And then from the revenue increases from that starter shop, we should have the leverage to open a second store, hopefully one that we do a build out in, in San Francisco. From there, we would either do a second round of funding or like to either open that store or a second round of funding to open a third store in between those two shops. So we should have three stores in the nearby area and Batch 22 becomes like a community name. That would be like the three-year plan. From the five-year plan, we decide whether or not we want to branch out to like Sacramento or to LA, one of those areas where we feel like Batch 22 could really thrive as a business. But expanding into those areas would mean that we would need GMs, like people to take over the businesses that we've already started or the, the shops that we've already started in order for us to branch out to a new territory. And would that mean we have to move to that territory as well? We would have to move to Sacramento for a few years to get this done or move to Orange County for a few years to get this done. So that's kind of like the loose plan for five years. But then after that, it's like, do we franchise? Do we do this? Like, are we going to go into grocery stores? You know, are we going to be the, the West Coast Levain competitor? There's a lot of different continuances and to pick one that this is definitely what's going to happen. I can tell you almost certainly that's probably not going to happen. Amy, would you agree with all of that? I mean, what would you like to see in the future come of this business? I've always been kind of a small dreamer. So I always just, you know, wanted to tinker with cookies, whatever. It's because of Lawrence that we're doing any of this. And now we have like a dream to open a storefront. All I want to do is to continue growing the Pudge brand and just to keep growing myself personally and professionally. I just don't really care which way that that happens. I think we're setting up ourselves up for at least like five years of really hard work. And after that, I'm not sure, like, will I still want to be slaving away in a kitchen or will I have a big enough team and like lots of good managers that can help us manage our brand? I'm not sure. Fair enough. Well, it's cool to see where you've come in just a couple short years. And I'm looking forward to seeing where your business is going to go in the future. So if people would like to learn more about your business, where they can they find you or how can they reach out? They can find us on Instagram, Batch22Bakery. And then we also have a website, which is batch22bakery.com. Great. Well, thank you guys so much for coming on the show and sharing with us today. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. It was fun. That wraps up another episode of the Forager podcast. Now, it was interesting. Amy and Lawrence's startup story actually reminds me of my own. They gave away a bunch of cookies to kick off their business. And if you can recall way back to podcast episode number one, I shared how I did something very similar for my fudge business. You can also go to giveawaylaunch.com to learn more about this business launch strategy. Now, for more information about this episode, go to forger.com slash podcast slash 65. And I have to ask, are you enjoying this podcast? 
And if so, have you left me a review? If not, please head over to Apple Podcasts right now and leave me a podcast review. A review is truly the best way to support this show and will help others find it as well. And finally, if you're thinking about selling your own homemade food, check out my free mini course where I walk you through the steps you need to take to get a cottage food business off the ground. To get the course, go to cottagefoodcourse.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode.